You're listening to audio from Plank Grove Harvest Church located in Crossville, Tennessee. If you'd like more information about our church and its various ministries, please visit our website at www.plankgroveharvest.org. Passed for the second time, and, and now it's Bildad's turn to make his second remarks. And, and again, what we find is more of the same. Uh, just like Eliphaz, what Bildad does is he takes this second opportunity to double down on what he said previously. And uh, when we saw Eliphaz, or when we saw um, Eliphaz the first time, he talked about personal experience, and and Bildad his first time focused on the importance of tradition, and uh, what he saw in his view was this fixed moral fixed moral order, and we're gonna we're gonna look at that tonight. But if you remember, we talked about how Bildad he included a lot of truth, but he didn't include the whole truth, and so again we see some continuation of that, but. Uh, Dell made reference to it this morning, but Job's friends just continue to kick a man while he's down. And uh, I think we can learn some things from, from Bildad's approach here in the second round, but I think we can equally learn just as much from, from Job's faith in God as his Redeemer. And that's kind of like the main highlight of, of chapter 19. But first, let's look at chapter 18 and see what Bildad has to say. It says, Then Bildad the Shuhite answered and said, How long will you hunt for words? Consider, and then we will speak. Why are we counted as cattle? Why are we stupid in your sight? You who tear yourself in your anger, shall the earth be forsaken for you, or the rock be removed out of its place? Indeed, the light of the wicked is put out, and the flame of his fire does not shine. The light is dark in his tent, and his lamp above him is put out. His strong steps are shortened, and his own schemes thrown him down. For he is cast into a net by his own feet, and he walks on its mesh. A trap seizes him by the heel, a snare lays a hold of him, a rope is hidden for him in the ground, a trap for him in the path. Terrors frighten him on every side and chase him at his heels. His strength is famished and calamity is ready for his stumbling. It consumes the parts of his skin, the firstborn of death consumes his limbs. He is torn from the tent in which he trusted and is brought to the king of terrors. In his tent dwells that which none of his that which is none of his, sulfur is scattered over his habitation, his roots dry up beneath, and his branches wither above. His memory perishes from the earth, and he has no name in the street. He is thrust from light into darkness and driven out of the world. He has no posterity or progeny among his people, and no survivor where he used to live. They of the west are appalled at his day, and horror seizes them of the east. Surely such are the dwellings of the unrighteous, such is the place of him who knows not God. And so these are some strong words from Bildad, and we see right out the gate that his, his words and his actions are so far removed from Job 2.11, where again, these three friends got together and said, hey, we're going to comfort our buddy. And instead of providing comfort, what Bildad does here is he's using his own words to defend himself and his counterparts. He's playing the defense. He's not interested in Job's comfort. That's not what matters. What matters is Bildad's own reputation. Uh, verse 2, it's a blatant attempt by Job, by, excuse me, by Bildad to curb Job's speech. He says, how long will you hunt for words? Consider and then we'll speak. It's just a fancy way to say, shut your mouth. I'm tired of listening to you. What you need to do is listen to me. And it's clear that Bildad, he's been offended by Job's previous words and he's not going to let them slide. So again, it's this automatic, I'm on the defense because of what you said about me. And instead of comforting you, I'm going to protect my own reputation. In verse 3, Bildad refers back to Job's comments in chapter 12, verse 2, chapter 12, verses 7 through 9, and chapter 17, verse 10. 
He says, why are we counted as cattle? Why are we stupid in your sight? And remember, these three men have approached Job and they've tried to tell him what wisdom is. They say, what we're offering is wisdom. And in turn, Job turns around and says, that's foolishness. What you're offering me is foolishness. That's not wisdom. And Bildad's taken offense to that. Job went as far, if you remember, to let them know that the information that you've provided me, it's widely known. There are no secrets here. You act like you're high and mighty and know something I don't. But what you've told me is common knowledge. It's so common that the animals know it. So in a sense, Job is accusing him of being no smarter than an animal. And that's why we see the statement that we see in verse 3. Why are we counted as cattle? Why are you calling me an animal, Job? I've tried to comfort you in his own mind. That's what he's thinking. I've tried to comfort you. I've tried to provide you with wisdom. And you're calling me stupid as an animal. I think that we have to understand here and we have to recognize that Job hasn't helped himself in this situation. He's spoken the truth to these three individuals, but there's got to be better ways for him to convey his thoughts. I mean, <laughs> there's a contesting of ideas here. That's, that's the way I'll put it. If you want to ask Charlie what I told him earlier in the week on a bus ride, he can tell you, but I can't say it from the pulpit. But what's going on here is just a contesting of ideas. It's just this back and forth of I can one-up you and you can one-up me. I got a better idea than you do. I do believe that Job is telling the truth, but he's thrown some jabs here. And what we see is Bildad playing defense. And, and what happens is it's just this continuation of this trade of barbs by these four men. And what happens when that's going on? Nothing. Right? Nothing's being accomplished. When these men are, are so busy throwing jabs at each other, nothing's getting accomplished. In verse 4, we see a comment similar to the words of Aliphaz that we saw a couple weeks ago. He says, You who tear yourself in anger, shall the earth be forsaken for you, or the rock be removed out of its place? In other words, listen, Job, do you think the whole world revolves around you? Do you expect God to go out of his way and disrupt the normal order of things just for you? Again, we come back to this idea of this is the way that I see the world, Job. This is, this, there's this fixed moral order. This is the way things are. If A happens, B happens. That's the way the world is. And now all of a sudden you think that you're beyond that. You think that God's going to stop the world. It's almost, I wrote down in my notes, and I, I don't know if it's a, a proper thought or not, but it's almost like these three men drift towards this deist mentality of God set the world in motion and this is the way it is and he stepped back. And now you want him to intervene again and change the order of things. So he says, Job, that's not the way the world works. You're not beyond this clear order. And, and at the center of this clear order is that idea that you're wicked and God punishes the wicked. Why do you want it any different? And, and what we see from Bildad here in this whole chapter, again, it's just this prime example of, of kicking a man while he's down. And Job's alluded to this this whole time, that what you're doing to me, these words that you're throwing at me, these accusations you're throwing at me, they've not brought me any comfort, but only brought me more pain. I didn't think that's what a friend was supposed to do. That statement that we just looked at in verse 4, you know, are, are you beyond the way that the world works? That gives us an insight into the way that Bildad's thinking. 
But as we go into verses 5 through 12, what we see is that on full display, there's this great deal of focus on the external, right? It's this fixed moral order. Bildad's assessed the scene, and now he's fitting it to the way that he sees the world, right? Let's read those verses again, 5 through 12. He says, indeed, the light of the wicked is put out. There's an insinuation here that what? Job's wicked. Your light's been put out, and the flame of his fire doesn't shine. The light is dark in his tent, and his lamp above him is put out. His strong steps are shortened, and his own schemes throw him down. For he is cast into a net by his own feet, and he walks on its mesh. A trap seizes him by the heel. A snare lays a hold of him. A rope is hidden for him in the ground, a trap for him in the path. Terrors frighten him on every side and chase him at his heels. His strength is famished, and calamity is ready for his stumbling." So his light's gone out, the light is dark in his tent, he's weakened. Why is he weakened? Because of his own schemes. He walks into this trap on his own accord, the trap consumes him, and as a result, his household's not blessed. And people forget about him. Right? If you go back to the very first chapter, what we learn about Job, he's the greatest man of the East. All these people know who Job is because of his wealth and his prosperity. And so now Bildad's saying, listen, as a result of what you've done... Your household's not blessed. You've walked into this trap on your own accord, and people have forgotten about you. There's some direct comparisons here. It's, it's, almost, like, it's almost like Bildad's painting this picture and saying, if there was a situation, while in the very moment he's talking about Job to his face, he just doesn't have the guts to say, Job. Has his light gone out? If we're talking about Job, has the light of Job gone out? Yeah. Has his strong position been weakened? Yeah. Has blessing been removed from his household? Yes. Have people forgotten about him? Yes. Bildad mentions all of these things, right? All of these external factors as a result of a trap. Bildad talks about a net, a rope. He talks about terrors. But all these things, they point to the same general idea of a trap. And here's the thing that Bildad tells Job, basically, you've openly walked into this trap because of your wickedness. So you can see this idea of a fixed moral order that Bildad's clinging to. It's similar, it's very similar to the worldview that we talked about with Eliphaz. So it doesn't take a rocket scientist, I don't want to insult anybody in here, but can you see the conclusion that Bildad is drawing here? He's, again, has your light gone out, Job? Check. Has your strong position been weakened? Yep. Have you lost all your blessings, your prosperity? Yes. Have people forgotten about you? Where are you sitting, Job? Oh, that's right, on the top of a trash pile. Do people gawk at you when they walk by? Yep. So what's the conclusion? That's what happens to wicked people, Job. So guess what? You're wicked, dude. <laughs> I mean, that's the conclusion. According to Eliphaz, it's crystal clear. There's no debate to be had. That's why there's so much frustration between these two men. Because Job wants to have the debate. And Bildad's not interested in the debate because he says it's crystal clear. I can see it with my own eyes. Verse 21 sums up exactly the thoughts of Bildad. Where he says, Surely such are the dwellings of the unrighteous. Such is the place of him who knows not God. Very strong words, but again, the implication that, Job, you've played a very good game up to this point. You had me fooled for a second. You had a lot of people fooled, but it's finally caught up with you. You've committed sin, 
and you don't really know God. And all of this is easily understood just by the external factors that we can see with our very own eyes. And again, what we've talked about before, there's some truth into what Job's friends are saying. Do these things happen to the wicked? Yes. The only problem is that what they've said, it doesn't apply to Job. And that should serve as a reminder to us that we have to avoid applying generalities into specific situations without knowledge of the whole story. We so badly want to be right and tell people how right we are when we don't know the whole story. And again, what's the purpose? We're going to talk about this in a little bit, but what's the purpose of the friend? Job's going to come back here in chapter 19, and he's basically at a point going to tell his friends, why do you have to double down and, and act like God needs help? I mean, if, if, if you're correct and if God's pursuing me, why do you feel the need to pounce on top? He's very capable of doing the job that he needs to do on his own. Why aren't you here trying to comfort me? So let's look at chapter 19. It says, Then Job answered and he said, so he's heard enough of what Bildad's had to say. And he says, How long are you going to torment me and break me into pieces with words? These ten times you've cast reproach upon me. Are you not ashamed to wrong me? And even if it be true that I have erred, my error remains with myself. If indeed you magnify yourselves against me and make my disgrace an argument against me, know then that God has put me in the wrong and closed his net about me. Behold, I cry out violence, but I'm not answered. I call for help, but there's no justice. He's walled up my way so that I cannot pass, and he has set darkness upon my paths. He stripped me from my glory and taken the crown from my head. He breaks me down on every side, and I'm gone. In my hope, he has pulled up like a tree. He has kindled his wrath against me and counts me as his adversary. His troops come on together. They have cast up their siege ramp against me and encamp around my tent. He has put my brothers far from me, and those who knew me are wholly estranged from me. My relatives have failed me. My close friends have forgotten me. The guests in my house and my maidservants count me as a stranger. I've become a foreigner in their eyes. I call to my servant, but he gives me no answer. I must plead with him with my mouth for mercy. My breath is strange to my wife, and I'm a stench to the children of my own mother. Even young children despise me. When I rise, they talk against me. All my intimate friends abhor me, and those who I love have turned against me. My bones stick to my skin and to my flesh, and I've escaped by the skin of my teeth. Have mercy on me. Have mercy on me, O you, my friends, for the hand of God has touched me. Why do you, like God, pursue me? Why are you not satisfied with my flesh? Oh, that my words were written. Oh, that they were inscribed in a book. Oh, that with an iron pen and lead they were engraved in the rock forever. For I know that my Redeemer lives, and that at the last he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has thus been destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold, and not another. My heart faints within me. If you say, How will we pursue him? And the root of the matter is found in him. Be afraid of the sword, for wrath brings the punishment of the sword, that you may know that there's a judgment. There's a lot going on there. And the first thing that we see Job talk about in these first six verses is this torment of his friends. He's telling them, I can't stand what you're doing to me. All that you've offered me is additional torment. You've poured salt in my wounds, basically is what he's saying. I'm in a terrible situation, and all you've done is make it worse. In verse 3, he uses an interesting phrase. He says, These ten times you have cast reproach on me. Now, 
if you're a very logical and uh, numbers kind of guy like myself, you read that and you're like, what's Joe talking about? Because <laughs> we know Eliphaz has spoken twice. Bildad is now spoken twice. And Zophar once. Right? So 2 plus 2 plus 1 is 5, not 10. But Job says, these 10 times you cast reproach on me. So why 10? Well, I think what's going on here is Job's just simply trying to emphasize it's been a lot, man. It's been a lot. How often do you use large round numbers to exaggerate a situation? Right? There had to be 10 million people there. Right? I mean, we use big, nice, round numbers. And Job's just simply saying, listen, maybe you've only spoken five times, but it feels like 10. Shut up. How long are you going to beat me down? Then he says, are you not ashamed to wrong me? That's a, that's a reminder that, listen, didn't you come here to help? And yet you seem to have no problem wrongfully accusing me. Job's still clinging to his innocence. In case there was any doubt, he's still clinging to his innocence. He knows his situation, and his friends only think they know the situation. With that, Job, he proposes a counter-argument even. He says, listen, what if you're right? What if you are right? What if I'm wrong? And I don't even know it. He says, while you place yourself on a higher pedestal than me and you make a laughing stock out of my situation, you fail to recognize that it's God who's done this to me. And it's not your job to make it worse. It's God's net that is closed around me, not yours. I mean, that's what I see in verse 6 when he says, Know then that God has put me in the wrong. If, you, if you're right and I'm wrong, know that it's God that's done this to me, not you. And he closed his net about me. It's his net, not yours. Why are you trying to make it worse? There's, there's a lot of things. If, if we went around the room, if this is a classroom you know, situation, and I busted out the whiteboard here, and I was like, what do you think, class, that is wrong with these men's approach with Job? We could write down a lot of things. No doubt you'd notice things that I don't notice. But one big thing that stands out to me is that their approach is purely academic. In other words, it's detached from the situation. They're taking what they know of the world, this fixed moral order, and they're applying it to Job's situation. On the other hand, you've got Job who's intimately involved in the situation. It's his situation. He's the one hurting and experiencing loss. He's the one that's confused as to why is this happening to me. Job's feeling the direct contact of the hand of God while his friends haven't. His Job, his, his Job's friends are just trying to apply the textbook to what's going on. There's nothing personal there. I can't remember if I was talking to Dale or if I was talking to Charlie, but I, I was made the comment, like, the world's not a textbook. Like, how many people do you know that can ace the exam and then they walk out in the street and don't have two licks of sins? The world's not a textbook. And so their approach is strictly academic. But it's not effective because there's more going on than just what's a book say. They're not getting their hands dirty. They're not getting involved with Job. And, and the one key lesson I think that we can learn from this is that we have to be more than academic with our friends in their time of suffering. Because again, the world's not a textbook. As we minister to other individuals, we're called to listen, to hurt, to mourn, and to feel alongside them. And yeah, we're supposed to apply biblical principles. We're supposed to apply scripture, but we're supposed to do it in a loving way and we're not called to shout it down on top of them. 
in this high and mighty detached manner. This, this whole passage right here, Job's talking about this. It made me think about Matthew 9.36 that's talking about Jesus. And it says, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them. Because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. When we see somebody hurting, do we have compassion for them? Or do we just want to tell them how they've screwed up and how we know what's right? Because Job's made it clear that that's not effective. It's not helping anything. In verses 7 through 12, Job switches, he switches around four different times here. But in this second set of verses in this chapter, he's talking about the devastation of God. How he's just been devastated by the hand of God. He feels violated. And remember, he's holding on to this fact that he's blameless. He hasn't ruled out. He just told his friends, what if you're right and I'm wrong and I don't even know it? He hasn't ruled out this idea that maybe there's some unknown sin in my life. But again, he doesn't feel like it warrants the situation that he finds himself in. And, and even in that, it's very important, I think, for us to notice Job's major complaint. Because Job sometimes can get a bad rap, and he can be accused of claiming injustice on behalf of God. But that's not what's happening here. In verse 7, Job cries out, but his major complaint is not injustice. His major complaint is that he hasn't been answered. He, he declares, I've been walled up and closed in. My path is dark. I've been broken down. The, my glory's been stripped from me, and it feels like God's wrath is against me. That's this cumulative process. It's added up this whole time. And Job doesn't understand. And the major complaint is, I don't have an audience with God, and I haven't heard from him. Now, you read any book. You've got to have the ability sometimes to read between the lines. What's going on that's not explicitly said right here? And when Job is making this claim that I don't have an audience with God and I haven't heard from him, what's the implication? I think it is that prior to this, it's what Dale was talking about with Elis this morning. Prior to this, I have heard from him. And where's he been in the last however long this has been? Why has everything gone radio silent? I'm used to hearing and talking with God, and I'm not hearing anything, and I don't understand what's going on. So his complaint is not that this is wrong. His complaint is, I don't know. And why can't I have an audience? He says, I call for help, but there's no justice. Now, we got to understand, I call for help, but there is no justice. This doesn't imply injustice or imply injustice on the part of God. That's not what Job's saying. Job simply wants to hear from God. To say that there is no justice, do you hear anything? Hear this. To say that there is no justice doesn't automatically imply that there's injustice. There just haven't, hasn't been given a verdict yet. I mean, think about someone sitting in a courtroom. That I'm, I'm due justice. And the jury's deliberating, and the judge hasn't let the verdict go yet. Well, there's, there's not any injustice there. We just haven't got the verdict. We don't know what the final say is going to be. That's the situation that Job finds himself in. He just wants to hear from the judge. Then he goes on in verses 13 through 22 in this third section. And he talks about his forsakenness. He says, he's put my brothers far from me. All those that knew me are estranged from me. My relatives have failed me. My close friends, they've forgotten me. The guests in my house, they count me as a stranger. I've become a foreigner to them. I call to my servant, but he doesn't even give me an answer. 
My breath is strange to my wife. I'm a stench to my children. Even the young children despise me. Can you just see a picture there in verse 18? Even young children despise me. When I rise, they talk against me. Can you see? I'm sure this is not what was going on back in the day. But can you see the little trail of kids going to school, walking past the trash heap, pointing at that ugly man and making a mockery of him? Don't, don't believe for a second that I can't see the kids that I have in high school walking by and just totally ripping that guy. You remember who that used to be? Yeah, look at him now. You can't even recognize, is he even a human being anymore? I mean, just ripping him. He says, all my closest friends, they abhor me. Wink, wink, you three guys. And those who I love have turned against me. My bones stick to my skin and my flesh. I've escaped by the skin of my teeth. Have mercy on me. Have mercy on me, O you, my friends. For the hand of God has touched me. Why do you, like God, pursue me? Are you not satisfied with my flesh? In other words, are you not satisfied that I've been beaten down enough? Why are you going to beat me down some more? I think what we see in those verses is a very, very close parallel, again, between the life of Job and the life of Christ. Those that were closest to Job are now far from him. Those, those are Job's very own words. His relatives, his wife, they turn his back on him. And remember again, he's sitting in the trash heap all by himself. Job is a stranger to all people. And what happens in, in situations like Job's is people often grow uncomfortable around others in a difficult situation. He's become a spectacle. Again, the school kids walking by pointing their finger. He's become a spectacle, someone to gawk at instead of comfort. Even his own body's rejected him as a result of sickness. And just think about Job and just think about humanity. Relationships matter. Health matters. And we often take them for granted. And when they go, we hurt. And as if things couldn't get any worse, Job's also rejected and forsaken by God. He calls out and he hears no answer. So think about the life of Jesus. I know we've talked about John 6 a handful of times. He was rejected by his own followers. Huge crowd. He says about three sentences. They leave. In Matthew 8, you read of an entire city rejecting Jesus. He's in the garden. His closest followers. It's like a bad high school party in the woods. Here come the cops. Everybody scatters. Peter denies him three times. Think about just the multitudes. I mean, they're offered Jesus or a murderer, and they choose a murderer. And then Jesus' own words on the cross sound a lot like Job's in Matthew 27, 46. Why have you forsaken me when he's speaking to God? Then in verse 22, you see what we've already talked about. Job's like, man, why do you have to pile it on? He says, all of these relationships in my life have been broken. I'm a broken man. God has pursued me, and I don't understand why. So why do you feel the need to pursue me too? Are you not satisfied that I've already suffered? Is it not enough? What's enough? That's the whole point. Job's like, enough is enough. God doesn't need your help. I think there's a lesson there for us to hear. God doesn't need our help. Multiple times if we read the New Testament, we're called as believers to restore and edify individuals. That's, that's our role. Yeah, there's a time for discipline, but even in those situations, what's the goal? Restoration. It's not beat a man down so I can feel better about me. You know, as we read this, we should think, man, may I never fall so short of God's standard like these three friends have. This last section, 
23 through 29, probably the most, one of the most famous sections, of, definitely of this chapter, but of the whole book. We see Job's hope, like there's this certainty of Job's vindication. And we see his hope in three distinct ways, right? The first is Job desires that his words be written down. There's a, there's a few things going on here. He's seeking comfort and support, while at the same time he's holding firm to his innocence. And his friends have put on display, like they've made it very clear that the support that Job seeks is not going to come from them. We're going to hear them speak for several more chapters, but it ain't coming. Not from them. But Job still holds to this fact that I haven't done any wrong. And so much so that he wants his words to be recorded. He wants a written record. Because he believes one day, it's not coming from you three, but one day somebody might come along that's actually going to sympathize with me. They're going to read of my story. They're going to know that I was in the right. And they're going to have sympathy for me. What are we doing right now? That very thing. He also believes that at some point in the future, his case and argument is going to be proven correct. right? And we know from the first two chapters that he is a blameless and upright man. And Job thinks, if I can get this story written down, then at some point that's going to be revealed to all people. I'll be vindicated. The second thing, the second way we see Job's hope is he declares his faith in God. There should be no doubt. Verse 25, he says, For I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last he will stand upon the earth. There should be no doubt that the Redeemer that Job speaks of in verse 25 is God. Job's statement that God lives... It's counter to the simple fact that what? Man doesn't. <laughs> Man's going to pass away. So you know, in a way, I think what Job is saying here is that even if I pass away in this state of misery, God lives. And it's in Him alone that I'm going to trust. And it's Him alone that's going to clear my name. And then he comes back with a really bold claim in verse 26. He says, I'm going to see him. I'm going to see God. And the implication there is post-death. Because, if you think about it logically, why would I need to have a written record if I'm going to see him while I'm still alive? Right? But we've seen in previous chapters, Job goes back and forth. He waffles on this idea of, is there an afterlife? It's like he's unsure of it. But I think that this verse here, this section, is proof that all these thoughts that we've seen in the past is just Job's emotions and his situations getting the better of him. Because it does appear that he's fairly settled on the issue of life after death. And he longs to hear from God. Right? He feels forsaken. But Job knows that even if I don't hear from God in my current physical state, I'm going to see God and I'm going to receive my vindication after my death. Now, these statements are very fascinating, and I think we've got to be very careful not to read too much New Testament theology into the words of Job, because he doesn't know what we know. He didn't get to read the New Testament. We can't put words into his mouth. You don't like it when people put words into your mouth. We can't put words in Job's mouth. But they do provide us, I think, with little nuggets of hope and affirmation of life after death in a resurrected body in the presence of the Lord. 
Because it is interesting, isn't it? Where Job says, after my skin has thus been destroyed. Translation, after my body is dead and it's turned into worms and worm food and I'm gone, yet in my flesh I shall see God. Don't want to read too much into that, but I see a glorified body, something different going on. I get a new one and I'm going to see him. Although our situation on this earth may be less than desirable, we can be assured of better days if we place our hope and allegiance to Jesus Christ. The chapter ends with two very interesting verses that appear like a threat to these three friends. And I don't think that we can put that outside the realm of possibility. They've been throwing jabs at each other. And maybe this is a threat, but that's not exactly how I see it. Job says, If you say, How will we pursue him? Talking about God. And the root of the matter is found in him. Be afraid of the sword, for wrath brings the punishment of the sword, that you may know that there's a judgment. And again, while some have interpreted this as a physical threat from Job, I believe that's a misrepresentation of what he's saying. Job appears to just be implying that judgment is real, and he's trying to let these guys know, hey, judgment's real. These three friends claim to walk with God and to know him. And yet they present false theology and false accusations that do what? They misrepresent both God and Job. So I believe that what Job's doing is arguing that the reality of God's presence, right? He just said, I'm going to see him. And the reality of God's presence that's going to bring joy and satisfaction to Job is the same presence that's going to have the opposite effect on those individuals that claim to know God but don't. That's what Job's saying. And I think we can draw a comparison. I was going to flip over here to Matthew. I think you can draw a very, very similar comparison to Matthew seven fifteen through 23, where Jesus is speaking. He says, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On, many, on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness." I think Job's saying the same thing. He's saying, if you say, how will we pursue him? Hey, we're really after God. We're really chasing him. How do we really pursue him? And you say, the root of the matter is found in him, that all things revolve around him, and he's my sole importance. He's my rock. If you're saying those things, you better know there's a judgment, and you better be right. And you better be on the right side of it. Because what you're doing right now, I don't think is the will of the Lord. You're just beating me down. And you're misrepresenting me, and you're misrepresenting him. And when you're doing that, you better be careful. Because judgment's real. So, just to close here, what, what are the, you know, what's that got to do with me? What's that got to do with me? I think there's a handful of things that we can learn. We've talked about some of them. The first one is that personal jabs often aren't productive. Did Job, did Job tell his friends truth? Yeah. 
Did he have to tell them they were stupid as donkeys? <laughs> no. Because then we get into this back and forth that's not very productive. Am I responsible for telling other individuals the truth? Yes. But there's a way to do it that's productive, and there's a way to do it that's not productive. The second thing that we have to understand is just that effective counseling, effective comforting, it's not purely academic, right? I got to get my hands dirty. I got to get in there with the person. I got to hear. I got to listen. I got to build up, not tear down. I can't just tell them this is, this is, this is what I would do if I was you. That's what we want to go to. Is that important? I think on some level at some time it is. But if, but if that individual doesn't know that I'm genuinely concerned and genuinely invested, then they're not going to care what I tell them about this is what you should do. I think a third thing that we can see is just that godly suffering is an honor. You think about the way that Job felt forsaken by God, and then you see the way that it's paralleled with the way that Christ was forsaken by God on the cross. Well, what was Christ doing on the cross? Man, there's no better work than that. And he's suffering greater than any human being has ever suffered. What do we see with the life of Job? I mean, there's a purpose here in what God's doing. So I think in suffering, in godly suffering, notice that adjective there, godly. Just because I suffer because I go off and do something stupid doesn't mean there's a purpose in that. But if it's godly suffering, there's a purpose and we have to view it as an honor. Because through suffering is when I can draw closest to him. Through suffering is when I can learn the most. And too often we see suffering as just something that we're trying to avoid at all costs. Just like Job, I think it's important that we recognize that our Redeemer lives. Regardless of what happens to me, regardless of what happens to my body, I had a, I had a uh, substitute. We were talking about substitute teachers before. And I had a, we got a pastor that, I don't know where he pastors, but he was substitute teaching. And he came up to me last week and was just telling me some things about it. I appreciate, I guess I have my Bible on my desk when he subbed for me one day. And I probably had sermon notes all over the place. And I don't know. But he just came up to me and said, I appreciate what you do. I appreciate the way you try to interact with your team and the things that you're doing. And I told him, I was like, listen, man, I've done this a long time, and if they want to fire me, I'll go somewhere else and do something. I mean, I can make money. I'm not worried about it anymore. Who cares? God's in control. And we, we have to take that approach with everything we do. Like Dale talked about, you know, the, the world is, gonna, is coming down on us, man. But who's going to stand? Why are we afraid to speak the truth? If we know that our Redeemer lives, who cares? That's what Jesus said in his own words. He says, man, don't quit worrying about the guy that can only hurt the body. Why are you wasting time on that? I got that under control. So we should live our life in a way that, that reveals that we believe and know that our Redeemer lives. And then lastly, just the thing that Job closed with as he told his friends, judgment's real and our fruit matters. I mean, I think there should be times in our life where we take a step back and we look at, look at our own fruit. Am I producing fruit? What does my fruit look like? Because it's, I'm, I'm pretty dang good at lying to myself. And so I've got to step back and look at, you know, what kind of produce am I producing here? Is it good or is it bad? Because that's going to tell me the state of my heart. And like Job, uh, Job, like Dale mentioned this morning, I think that ties right in. Job, I hope, Dale, I hope you don't suffer. But like Dale mentioned this morning, you know, who you surround yourself with. Or do you have people around you that will point out, hey, this is rotten fruit, man. Like, what's going on? Because if you don't, I think it's going to be a whole lot easier for that man to stumble than the man that has those people around him. So 
next week we uh we get Zophar's second trip and we'll go from there but i'll close this out dear heavenly father we thank you for uh man just this written record that job asked for and, and he got and lord i think that i thank you that we can learn from it and i pray that we would learn from it as you give us opportunities to interact with those that are suffering around us and and undoubtedly, as we are going to experience suffering in some form or fashion in our own life, Lord, I pray that we can cling to you and live our life in a way, regardless of external circumstance, in a way that, that reveals that we believe that our Redeemer lives, that we will cling to truth and will cling to you so that we might hopefully save others from the fire. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.